Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And this week we are covering Come Follow Me, where the manual's title is Be Ye Doers of the Word and Not Hearers Only. And we are covering the Epistle of James. The Epistle of James uh, was written not by the James of Peter, James, and John, one of the original apostles, but James, the brother of Jesus. James is the son of Joseph and Mary and the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he grew up with Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ's lifetime, James was not a disciple of Christ. We do know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, visited James, and we know that he became converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and became a leader in the Jewish community and, or in the Christian community in Jerusalem, and that he became the bishop and probably a later apostle. And so I was impressed with the very beginning of James chapter 1, verse 1, when it states, I, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, greetings. And I was impressed with that because I thought James, as the brother of the Savior, was bringing a lot of clout with the title of James, the brother of the Savior, but instead he chooses to call himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought that really reflected a level of devotion and humility. Devotion, knowing that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to serve and be part of Christ's mission, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, and that he, he showed a lot of humility there, which I think is a wonderful way to start off the book of James, a and, principle that's important. And I, 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 also, as you were just sharing that, I found it really inspiring to recognize that even though James wasn't able to recognize the Savior's role in his own life while he was yet on the earth, that he was, I mean, I think it shows a whole nother level of humility to be able to recognize that later in his life and not just to recognize it, but to be all in and to um, jump in in that way. It reminds me, although different, but I was like, wow, that's a very unique thing to have someone writing scripture who at one point wasn't even following the Savior. And then I think, well, there's Paul. And in the Book of Mormon, we have Alma Alma, the Younger, right? And so... Well, and also just thinking about the fact that he was the brother of Jesus Christ, scholars speculate that he was the next in line in birth order, and and I can see the sibling dynamic there would be interesting, and we know that in his lifetime, in Jesus Christ's lifetime, he saw Jesus Christ as his brother, not necessarily the Savior and Redeemer of the world, but he truly had a deep conversion, which gave him the opportunity to give us this important discourse, which really talks about living the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you live it. And he gives us lots of words of wisdom about how to practically apply it. And so to start off with that level of humility, I think is a wonderful way to start off talking about these things. And then he goes on to to verse 2, 3, and 4, which talks about, I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Consider it complete joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the test of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And again, he starts off by giving us this eternal perspective that in our trials, we, our faith is strengthened and we produce endurance. And 
After this point of humility I brought up, he's giving us an ex- he's talking to us about faith and endurance, and he will go on to talk to us about faith and works, which we know are important for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that your translation brought in that word endurance, because in the King James Version, the word that's used is patience. So the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work. And I don't know about you, but when I hear about like patience, that seems to be the ever elusive, everybody always feels like they need more of it kind of situation. And it almost feels like something you just have to wait for because actively working to get patience doesn't feel very patient in some ways. And so I appreciate having this other way to think of it, this other word, which is endurance, because that does feel, you know, in harmony with our title today, which is be doers of the word and not hearers only. Endurance does feel like an action word. It's something that we can develop and actively work on. Yes. And and I do actually like the concept of if we could put them together, I think it would be a really nice addition to put endurance in your translation and patience in my translation because you do have to patience does have a sense of of waiting and not as much action endurance has that more action but to be able to patiently endure our trials and recognize that as we do that we become more like the savior Um, but we do have to do it in patience endurance is something that you learn line upon line you become strengthened and you can endure more and more and more Sure, because the because because as you jump in to a situation and you are, you know, having all the endurance that you can try. So you're <clears throat> trying your best in a given situation. Maybe you have a certain struggle, or you're being faced with this challenge and this obstacle to overcome. And you're like, you know, if I just am all in and I put all my effort into it and I build this endurance, then I'll be there. Voila! But part of it, I think it's voila. But part of it is, I like you using French. Not just I did. Never mind. That's a side topic. I was watching a French documentary last night, so that's why that oh. popped in. Um, but I think when you talk about patience, that is the part. Like the endurance is our piece, but patience is waiting on the Lord to see His timing and to see how He is going to magnify his work in our life. So really, it, just in this these first six verses, we actually get set up with a paradigm of something that goes throughout the chapters of faith and work. Um, and then we see it in verse five, that this is what we do in this process of faith and work. We have faith that we can ask, we have to work by actually asking. And yes. so here we have because in that, verse 5. Okay, because that piece, I think, is such a common one as I've worked with the youth, for example. I think that that, that next little piece of it is the part that is, it's kind of a struggle. And the interesting thing is, it's like a speed bump in that once you get on the other side of it, it's not like it continues to be that big struggle in that moment. For example, if they are struggling with something and they think, oh, I'm struggling, like to take like that that moment of decision to actually make the choice to reach to God and say, how are you going to get me through this struggle? And to be open to that, that 
actual, there's like this moment, this pivot point of going from, I'm just going to like sit in this yuck to let me turn to God and ask him. That little moment is important. And I think it, it is, there's something about it. And speed bump is the only thing I can think and of. And the, the, the visual of a speed bump for me, I absolutely love that you use that analogy because I think the point of this is we come to this earth to learn, to become dependent on the Savior and become more like Him. And that through obedience in our suffering, we we gain those attributes of mercy and grace in our own lives. But I think this process of faith and works until we get better at it, it's like going up a mountain as far as how hard it is sometimes to get to where you can have the faith to do the work and then you get the reward. But I think when you get better and better at it, get at it, these mountains become more hills and the hills become more speed bumps. And then you start just asking in faith often and your trials do not feel as monumental when you become more yoked with the Savior and his work. We go from these huge, climbing these huge challenges because all of it feels like it's intimidating. But when we get more yoked with the Savior, I think those huge mountains we have to overcome become more like speed bumps. And I think it's part of the process to be get better and better at asking and faith and being willing to listen. And you like get those discernments that help this process become easier and easier. Which may not be kind of what the analogy that you were making, but... When I connected with it, that's how I saw it for my own life, just thinking about how massive the bumps used to be and how they're more just not as big speed bumps when well, things aren't going the way I want them to. And and maybe there's a correlation there between, <clears throat> you know, there's different things about our struggles that can each feel like their own mountains. So there's like the struggle to reach to God. There's the struggle of literally how big is this challenge? You know, my favorite shirt, I accidentally put it in the dryer and it shrunk compared to some actually catastrophic situation. Those are different struggles, obviously. But then also, as you were speaking, the thing that came to my mind was hope. That part of, I think, why the challenges begin to feel less daunting is because we have developed through pattern, through our consistently turning to the Savior, through our reaching to Him, we develop a pattern not only of reaching to Him, but of hope. Because we have hope that every time we reach for the Savior, He will be there, He will be yoked with us, and that He already has a plan for how this is going to work out for us. He already knows how we're going to get through this challenge. And when we put it to the test again and again and again, that hope becomes more sure, more bright. And therefore, of course, these obstacles seem less daunting because we quickly learn doing this on my own is really exhausting. So I'm just going to turn to the Savior more quickly each time and lean on him and trust that he knows what's going to happen from here. And that's such a beautiful image to think about when we talk about these specific scriptures that say faith produces endurance, that as we do that more and more, we will be able to endure things better yes. and more like the Savior. Um, and so we have the scripture uh, made famous by Joseph Smith, who was pondering on it for 
for quite a long time before he turned to go to the Sacred Grove. And it states, why don't you read it? Since mine's the Greek translation. Okay, so we're in James chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, and then we can break it down from there. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And so, again... We've discussed this before, the importance of this scripture, but this idea of faith and works is broken down in that. If anyone lacks wisdom, which you've pointed out that that is such a great okay, so point. I'm going to take a minute to <clears throat> to share this because I think that it... Um, a couple years ago, this was the theme for the youth in the church was these two scriptures. And so we had the opportunity to kind of break it down a little bit. And in fact, many of us even memorize these scriptures. And it's interesting because at first we think that the scripture for, you know, is just, if you need to know something, ask God and he will give you the answer. You have faith. Very straightforward. And to a certain extent, that is what it's saying. But I think that there are there's more in here that can really help us with this journey that we're taking to try to live it from a place of faith and hope. And it starts right at the beginning of these verses. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And to me, this is where it begins because this is such a place of humility. And maybe this is not a surprise given where James is coming from and how he opened his book describing himself as a servant of God when he could have described it otherwise. But when when you say this phrase, if any of you lack wisdom, that involves a certain level of introspection. Do I lack wisdom? Is this something that I cannot figure out on my own, that I don't have the power exclusively within myself to figure out? And being able to recognize in that moment I lack something that God can fill for me is really beautiful and I think sets the stage for the type of understanding and gifts like unto what Joseph Smith was given when he applied this scripture. Right, and I love that you pointed that out and it does match up with James who shows this humility because you need to have humility in order to be an introspective person. I shared a little bit about how Joseph Smith was living a contemplative life when he went to the sacred grove to pray. Part of his life was reading the scriptures with his family, reflecting on on what this meant. The The Bible was not yet something that he had received revelation as far as getting Joseph Smith's translation, and he didn't have modern-day um, commentary to reflect on all the scriptures he had been reading, but he did have his family that he shared conversations with, that he worked with, and that they discussed these topics with daily. So this was part of his life. Being introspective was probably part of his life because he lived a quiet life on a farm where there was um, no opportunity to reflect on things. So having a contemplative life, reflecting on this, is part of the first step of doing this, of, of having the faith to then recognize what you need to act on. And so... I also appreciate in the scripture that it, that it there's nothing exclusive about Heavenly Father's wisdom. Anyone has the opportunity to pray and ask in faith. And any question that they have, he in my 
translation, it says, everyone generously and without reproach can ask of God and without reproach, meaning there, there is no um, standard for what's appropriate to ask, but he will give to everyone liberally that will gener- really has that desire to know. And he will guide them if they're asking in faith. And then as it says, um, without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so there's some things we need to do when we come to him, when we come to God and ask in faith to keep us solid when we're being tossed to and fro by the challenges of the world. And some of those things are to be able to come to God with, with a faith that's not doubting. So to be able to recognize that we believe and that the Savior can help us in our unbelief, but be committed when we are to do what we're told when we actually get answers. And I think also to believe that God can and will answer us when we need to know. I think that there are some things that I just really like to know and understand, like, you know, yesterday. That'd be nice if I could understand that. But I think that there are other things. So like in some situations, it is in the Lord's wisdom that we not know because he needs us to keep moving forward in faith and to develop that endurance Mm -hmm. of living by faith in what he's asking us to do. But I do think that there are other things that he is willing to freely share with us and help us to understand. And I think that that particularly applies. It seems to me, and you can tell me if you've observed this as well. So I'm. it's not exclusive, but it seems to me that when I'm trying to say, Lord, why is this happening? Or what's happening with this situation? Or like, help me to understand like circumstances, that those questions are less often answered right when I want them to be. Because I feel like in my experience and in my life, so this could just be specific to me, but he wants for me to keep walking in faith on those questions a little bit longer. But when I reach out to him with questions about myself, help me to understand your love for me. Help me to understand mm, my strengths. Help me to understand what gifts you've given me and how I can be using them. Those things when I'm trying not to just make sense of like external things, but when I'm trying to make sense of myself and my spirit, my relationship to God, I feel like those things, he flow a lot more in a much more timely fashion Mm -hmm. for me. Okay, so I love that. I love that you pointed out that insight into who you are and your relationship with God, we might be able to access easier than some other things. I think part of it has to do with the plan of salvation. We are here to exercise faith. And faith without works is not part of this plan. So we come down to earth, we get a body, and he goes on to tell us in um, chapter 2 that he compares this, the spirit being dead to faith without works being dead. And, but I bring that up now because this question of, of, of asking in faith, we are here on the earth to exercise our agency. And part of that is not knowing everything. Because if God revealed everything to us all at once, we wouldn't have to make the effort to do the work. 
We wouldn't have to make the effort to be patient and endure. We wouldn't even have to use our agency. We would just pray and he would tell us everything. Or, or even to exercise hope. None of, none of it would happen mm-hmm. if we just prayed and he told us everything that we wanted to know. It's part of the plan to be able to learn this process of being contemplative, reflective, humble, faithful, asking in faith, acting on it, working. It's all the process of becoming more like the Savior and understanding through trials what that means, what that means to come down here and get a physical body and to experience experience these trials and to suffer in them so that we can be strengthened in grace and mercy and understand what that really means. Clearly, if we prayed and everything was given to us, a lot of that's taken away. And so that's what he talks about as we continue how you do that. What is the practical application? And so he set up that we need to ask, but then he tells us what true religion looks like. And he says specifically, listen, be very quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and be a hearer of of what you're told not. And it says If anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a person who looks at his own image in the mirror is what I was just reading. So that's why it came came backwards. backwards. Mm -hmm. Because he wants us to become doers of the word and not merely hearers of who deceive themselves. And then he goes on to say, if you do this, where it's like looking in a mirror, walking away from the mirror and forgetting your own image. And so quite literally, the image of God in our countenance and remembering that's who we are is part of why we have to do all of this. It's part of why we need to listen to the Spirit. It's part of why we need to listen to each other because we're all children of God having this earthly experience. Okay, So so that's one of the first steps he goes to as far as what this religion looks like. So when I first read that, like in... With the mirror, like in our version, it just says his natural face in a glass. So it makes sense that that's the correlation there. But as you were saying that, I was thinking, okay, so this makes a lot of sense in that when we, you know, we can take in and hear any number of things that we don't act upon. And when we are not acting upon what God has given us, We really are reflecting our own selves out Mm, to the world. mm -hmm. But when we are acting upon things of God and we are striving to to apply and to implement the things that God is giving us, then we are able to step-by-step reflect God's countenance as we project that out to the world. And that's like a really beautiful thing. Yeah, and and that's what he's saying. He's saying if you... If you're not really, if you're just not actually applying and doing the work, then you're just hearing it and you're forgetting who you really are by the action. It's reinforcing the fact that you are a child of God and you can reflect his image in your countenance and you can be part of his work. And so he says, listen to this, listen, listen to those around you, listen to the spirit, have this contemplative life. And then he states, and what does your your verse 27 say what pure religion is? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the vices of the world. I included the Joseph Smith translation in that. Yeah, to keep themselves unspotted from the world. And so really you have this formula of listen to people, Love as the Savior does, 
repent to keep yourself unspotted in the from the world and work and i and he goes on to tell us why we need to do this and the distractions that come um, but his emphasis is to not be double-minded that's a word that he uses a lot that follows this so if we move on to chapter two it talks about being double-minded a lot, which talks about hypocrisy. And and this um, book of James really points out that hypocrisy um, is kind of the root of, of sin and the things that keep us from loving our neighbor as ourself, which is the golden rule, and from living the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in order to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, he talks about... Um, it's not just knowing. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that there is a God, you do well. Even the demons believe and are struck with fear. I, I wonder if your translation's different. It's very similar. Okay. And so we know that recognizing there is a God is important, but we also know that Satan and his minions recognize there is a God. As from this, he's saying that it's nice that you recognize there's God, but that isn't actually all that you have to do on this earth, right? You have to actually recognize him, recognize his power in your life, apply it and be willing to do the work that he wants you to do like Father Abraham, who consistently is is an example over and over in the Bible because it's such an amazing example, right? We have Abraham in verse 21, our father Abraham not made right, uh, right oh, not made righteous by works when he offered his son, was our father Abraham not made righteous by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith, faith was working in tandem with his works, and his faith was made perfect by works. So it wasn't just that Abraham had faith that Isaac would be saved and would produce the posterity that was actually promised to him. It was that he was willing to go up to the mountain and to sacrifice his son, and he had to do the work. He had to walk up the mountain. He had to walk up the mountain with Isaac. And Isaac, I mean, is an intelligent enough person that he knew something was off, right? He, knew, he yes. was The whole concept of how much actual work this was to get him up to the altar, to get him on the altar, and to get something to sacrifice him really shows the difference between faith without works versus faith with works. There's a much bigger lesson to be learned when you actually apply the work to the faith. Okay, and then I like how he also gives this example <clears throat> that is maybe a more everyday moment because these moments like Abraham and Isaac experienced were like, if we're lucky, once-in-a-lifetime moments of demonstrating faith, right? Because that is like an epic thing to request. But then in verses 8 and 9... James speaks to us about judging others. Oh, right. Okay. And, and, and he says in verse 8, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. And I thought that was interesting how he says, you know, I think that this is something, I think we've all... We either have all or we can all recognize in other people this experience like Abraham had, where it was this sort of epic, life-defining moment of faith that was required in a situation. And then James also, in the same chapter, speaks about this small thing, but it's actually something that we have the opportunity day by day to practice, which is 
It is not our place to judge other people within the body of Christ, outside the body of Christ, that that is not our role. In fact, I remember I was sitting in um, a bishop's youth council once, and we were talking about this topic of judgment, and someone else in the room said, you know, there's only two callings in the church. There's a calling to love and a calling to judge. And... The only person who has a calling to judge is the bishop, who's a common judge of Israel, and his calling is also to love. And But every other calling in the church is a calling to love. And I thought, that's so beautiful. Like, that's so much less stressful than trying to feel like I have to, like, keep track and make assessments all the time. Not that I'm saying I do that, but I think that there's a tendency in many of us to... Mm, well, venture out of that realm. Right. So there's, I, I really love that statement about love because, first of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the core of it is love. Um, and there's really only one righteous uh, judge, and, it, and that is God the Father and, um, and Jesus Christ. But that we have the role of the bishop, that is something that he's, has the mantle to be a judge in Israel. But again, that's just a calling. So it's not like when he's released from it, that, that continues. He's just, he just has that mantle for some time. So really first and foremost, not judging is, and, and loving people is important. But I think what you're talking about is the difference between um, not judging and discerning, because there is a part where you always need to discern with love too. And I think we talk about that again at the end more as far as he these these themes are thread thread throughout this and so you come back to these concepts of not judging, but there is this part of righteously discerning that I think people think they're doing when they're really judging people. And so discerning between that, maybe that's something we'll talk about as we go on, but okay. I like how you you brought this up because I saw specifically that after you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that it says, for the one who obeys the law but stumbles is the one thing is guilty of the entire law. So if you, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So in other words, there's, there's, there's different laws and if you commit adultery but you do not murder you've still chosen not to follow the savior if you if you murder but you don't commit adultery again it doesn't matter you've already excluded yourself from living in love and living in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it says so speak and act like those who will be judged by the law of liberty the law of liberty is what Jesus Christ brings into our life that um who shows us mercy in his judgment and mercy tri triumphs over judgment. So And and that completely reminds me of President Uchtdorf's talk and like that kind of made famous bumper sticker that he quoted, Don't judge me because I sin differently oh, than you. I loved when he said that. And I think that applies to ev that completely applies to that. Absolutely. And 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 the interesting thing about that is the, the actual example is do not commit adultery and then following Abraham as another very righteous faith following example he used is Rahab the prostitute, who was also um, an example in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great examples of faith. And yet the, the concept of prostitution and adultery obviously go hand in hand. And so for us to think that we understand God's 
God way God's way is enough to judge other people because they have a title like a, a certain title or they look a certain way or or whatever their outward appearance is is not is not how we need to to interact with people. We need to love people and we need to learn from people. And so then as part of this kind of leading into you know, there's not like a grade like, oh, you get a B in sin, so you're you're doing okay. But you but you got an F because that was a real big deal sin. No, all sin separates us from God. So when we look to someone else and say, mm, you're pretty far off from where you need to be, is that not what the Savior was talking about when we look at others and we make an assessment of them without recognizing every single one of us is in some way separated from God, and let's focus on how we can be connected to God instead of all the diverse ways we can be separated from Right, so either we can choose to work in the light with the Savior, or we can separate ourselves from Him, but we all can help each other feel that love and share that light. When we choose to sin, we can separate ourselves from that, but but yes, there's no room for judgment between us all. And so at the end of this chapter is where he stated, um, verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. And and I, I do think it's a good point to make that we came down here to receive a body and that in our bodies we can express our spiritual faith and that the faith without works is dead is a is a it's physically man manifest in our bodies as we're here doing the work. Now, the reason why I think that is interesting is because he spends so much time now talking about speech. Yes, which which I wrote down in my margin. <clears throat> why do our words have so much power? Like he s- goes on and on and on about how you know the words that we say are a reflection of who we are, and how we manage our tongue is a reflection of our greater whole. And I thought. That is the point. Like, that is our sort of, I don't know, our place marker in in a reflection for who we are. And I was interested to hear your thoughts on that because I thought that was really interesting. And I do think it's interesting because if you think about it again in the plan of salvation, speech is our manifestation of our agency. So that... Our faith and our works go together, and when we come down here, we have thoughts, we have speech, we have actions. They all correlate. They all influence each other. We may have this faith, but what we choose to do with that faith oftentimes manifests in our tongue and in our words. And he says that controlling these things, managing them, um, it's like he compares it to a fire. You can... You can use it to say good things. You can use it to say bad things, but it will consume people. It will affect people. It can grow. And if we're looking at it in the plan of salvation, we have the agency to use the words to affect other people. You talked about how we're all on this earth bumping up to each other. There's a reason for speech. Is the reason that we have speech to empower each other? Is the reason to point out that we are children of God and that we have a work here to do on the earth that we can be part of? Um, Christ's work or is it to just tear each other down and to become more separate and to um, do the things we just talked about not participate in that work and so the transition from the point we just made to how we use our tongues we can use it for good or we can use it for ill and maybe the the key takeaway that I've that I've taken from this is that there is power 
in our words and how they affect other people. But clearly, I think that that may just be a representation of a larger principle, which is that the word and the spoken word does have a power. I I don't have the exact quote, but I'm thinking of like at the creation of the earth, it said that these things were accomplished by the word of his mouth. Well, and I think this whole whole book of James started talking about prayer, and it will end talking about prayer. And quite honestly, if we want to be a little esoteric or philosophical about it, all the words that come out of our mouth can be a prayer. They can be a manifestation of our devotion to God. They can be in the way we talk to people. They can be in the way we minister to people. And so to talk about prayer, that the prayer that Joseph Smith, or the, the verse that Joseph Smith reflected on for so long and led him to this, um, this prayer to see that a prayer can open up the dispensation of the fullness of times, the power of that, those words that he spoke in prayer did a great work. The power that we can do with prayer just for each other, just share. And, and it goes on to talk about our ministering we can do through prayer. So I think that this talking about power of words is significant. Yes. And I think as we spoke about, again, kind of we have this this juxtaposition of this grand purpose in words, but also bringing it down to this everyday level with our words. i reminded of... Um, a woman that I know who always I, I've observed and been the recipient to my benefit many times that she uses, there, there, there are no missed opportunities. She uses her words to lift and to praise and to recognize strength and light and gifts in other people. And I I am drawn to her. Like, I love spending time with her because she makes me feel fantastic. And do I think, I know her? Yes, you do okay, know her. Okay, I think I know who you're talking and about. And I think, okay. Because I might have the same feeling. Okay, so if we, if I can have that experience where I walk away from her feeling more light, more hope, and feeling more maybe confidence or more being more centered in my own strength and my own light. There was power in that exchange that she just did. And that is ministering on this incredibly beautiful level. And we, each of us have that potential within us to do that for others. Each of us can access it more and more, especially if we ask in faith, we can access it. And we do know that the power of God on earth, the priesthood gives us the opportunity to speak the words of God if we so choose to live our life with the inviting that into our life. And in in chapter three, verse nine, it says, words are tongues, with it we bless the Lord and Father. So we pray with our tongues, and with it we curse people who are made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So the very point you were just making, James also makes, and he says that that same tongue, you can pray to God and you can pray for others, or you can use that same tongue to pull people down and not not recognize what they're 
their divine nature is. And yet if we all recognize their divine, each other's divine nature, wouldn't we constantly be using words to build each other up? Well, and I think even just from a practical standpoint, I've learned, and especially in the last year, I've learned that when I want to communicate love and to inspire positive change, that it is accomplished so much more effectively and efficiently by helping people to feel confident and to feel loved and accepted for the good things they already have. And then they can recognize the piece of a foundation that they can build on. If we're just constantly noticing the things that are not good, you can't build on a not good. You can't build on a negative. You have to build on something. And each person, each human has something, something that's good, something that is like this place where they can start and helping each other to recognize that good, beautiful, solid place to build from that is like that changes people's lives. Well, and I think this is where we go back to judgment and discernment. I think when people are maybe pointing out criticisms that they recognize that that beautiful person inside of them, there may be some things that need to be pushed away, that they may not be seeing their full potential. And people think that it's their job to point that out to them. Even when you talked about ward councils specifically, maybe even people that get callings and in the in their ward, they think it's now their job to say, oh, let me help you move out all those things that are, that are getting in the way of you being the real child of God you are. But even though that's maybe the... Um, superficial way to see it if we can see that it's our job to work in love and to work like the savior as we love people as we point out their divine potential as we can see that perspective in them they can see that themselves they can take the the layers of hurt or whatever it is that's causing that that whatever is putting somebody off whatever they're judging them for that seeing the beauty inside of them and bringing that out of them is where the strength comes from for them to overcome the things that we might superficially see. But all of it has to do with having the perspective that we're talking about. But that is why people get confused about why am I trying to discern something and it comes off as judgment, right? Because it is judgment. So the point is, is as we really love each other, because often, oftentimes we're processing our own insecurities, right? When we do that to other people, it's all part of the same thing. As we love other people, we can learn to love ourselves. As we take off those, um, the things of the world that are keeping us from seeing each other as real children of God, um, we're able to do this more powerfully, more and more. And so, and, and, and I think it's worth noting that there are some exceptions to this rule, but I think the vast majority of people, they know that they have weaknesses. Yes, nobody needs, they, needs like, help like we, having them pointed out. I, we are all aware, I am aware that there are things that are not awesome about me. And when you point it out to me, that doesn't make me feel more awesome and motivated to change it. Well, and, and I think you see the example well in children. You'll see a lot of bad behavior manifest when they're really seeking out love. Like we understand that just there'll be attention seeking as young children 
because they can't get the love they want and they start manifesting bad behaviors. But we even do that as, that as adults. As we manifest things that we know we're insecure about, a lot of time it's like, please just give me attention. Please just give me love. And when people are able to do that for other people, there's a lot of strength in that. And then people can have that contemplative life. They can be, they're able to reflect and they're able to ask for themselves if we support and love them. And so as that chapter goes on, chapter three, at the end of chapter three, it talks about the wisdom of the world versus God's wisdom. And I think you had some interesting thoughts about Well, because that. because it's interesting as you speak about discernment, that's the word that I wrote in my margin for verses 15 through 17, because I really felt like to a certain extent, um, discernment is something that to me is a little bit of a key like when i think of like like a map when you have a map and you're looking at it there's always a little if i'm thinking of like my geography from elementary school properly it's called a key where it tells you well this represents a this a legend yeah. something yeah. like that and i feel like to a certain extent discernment is a little bit of a key or a legend for some of our spiritual gifts in that as we build our ability to discern, then we strengthen all of our other spiritual gifts. And so, and I just think discernment's awesome. The more that I have it in my life, I like it. And I, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. James is giving us some very specific things, talking about the difference between things that are earthly, sensual, and devilish compared to the wisdom that comes from above in verse 17, which is something that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. And to a certain extent, it comes back to, by their fruits, ye shall know them. But I just really appreciated that here he is laying out sort of like a jumping off point for beginning this pathway of discernment. Right. And I I do like this um, contrast because we see that the wisdom of the world is in sharp contrast to the wisdom of God. So the wisdom of the world, you may look successful and powerful and be admired because of your acquiring worldly things, but the fruits of of true wisdom are those of righteousness. And so he goes on in chapter 4 to say specifically what are some of the things that keep us um, separated from each other. What are some of these things that are the roots of contention and wickedness? What are some of these things that do keep us judging each other and not loving each other? Um, And the very first thing he talks about is, and and generally, these are all about being humble. He talks about hypocrisy again. Which verse are you in? Uh, So chapter 4, verse, we'll go with 8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep, and let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy into heaviness. Be humble before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think that's a little bit confusing, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and weep, and let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy into heaviness is specific to people that are light-minded and evil-speaking of others. That that's just, It's more of a derisive laughter, but... Be humble before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, and and I put by verse 9, mindfulness. Like, allow yourself to feel. It's okay to feel some of these things and these experiences and to come to God with them. Humble yourself, feel these things, and turn to God, and he can create wholeness from that which may be broken within us. Well, and it says 
It says, pure, cleanse your hand sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So again, that hypocrisy. But if the, the thing with hypocrisy is the real challenge. Why it's a, a sin is that you are not innocent in your knowledge of what you're doing. Hypocrisy is you know how to choose the right, and you choose to pretend to be doing it. But we can. he's telling people to just literally cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and turn away from hypocrisy by being humble, by not judging, and by not boasting of yourself. So again, Christ is the one um, lawgiver and judge. The, and this is verse 12, the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And that in um, boasting of yourself, there's no point to that because we are all dependent on the Lord. Verse 14, but you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? If the Lord desires it, then he, then we will live and do this or that. So all of everything turns us to God, but the world tries to separate us from him. And he tries to separate us from him by us separating separating us from each other too. And so James is doing a really good job of pointing out these things that cause contention and wickedness. And division, because one of the things that stands out to me as we're speaking is this definition that of integrity, which to me, integrity is, I live what I believe. Whatever is my values and my standards that I believe then I'm going to put that into action. And I think that that definitely seems to be a bit of a thread here. And in fact, in, in so we're chapter 4, verse 17, um, I think he really gives us a bit of a definition here of what sin is. And interestingly, I think it's not following that pattern. It says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. So my thought was that sin then is a failure to walk in the light that we have received. And so I think that that is bringing us, connecting us back to these same principles, which is, as we learn, we do. And and immediately following this, he talks about the problem that comes with riches. And this, this has to go with the boasting and the lack of the humility and the, the judging that um, riches... Are, are fleeting, and he talks about the the lack of value of the real lack of value of riches. But riches are such a distraction, and they they distract you from God. They give you this sense of 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 that you don't need God, and that you can boast of yourself, and you are doing it yourself. And so, those that do not have these riches oftentimes have to rely on the Savior even more. It's not necessarily a, a blessing to always have these riches because they distract you from what's truly important. And so he just does a really good job of, of reminding us of all the distractions we can have, but that, that the real reason why we're here, it's again the plan of salvation. That in the plan of salvation is also the plan of happiness, but it's whenever there's happiness, in order to have happiness, you have to have challenges too. We know there's adversity in all things, but we wouldn't even know the meaning of happiness if we didn't have suffering. And so the suffering and the, 
and the obedience is what teaches us to be compassionate and merciful and make our speed bumps smaller and smaller so that we can become more like the Savior. So in verse chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Behold, we regard those who endured as blessed. And so we have that word endurance again, right? That endurance sounds hard. It's not a hard, it's not a hang out and do whatever you want and just wait. It's a working word. It's work. I love it. And so, but he's saying that suffering and patience are how you get stronger and how you get to the point where at the end of verse 11, you learn to be more like the Lord who is full of compassion and mercy because then you can turn and help your fellow being without judgment And we get this beautiful ending that gave me lots of thoughts about how we can currently minister to people, but brings us full circle to the prayer again. So, and then the other thing that I just wanted to interject here, I loved, um, as we're talking in my version, patience comes up a lot more again. Um, Chapter 5, verse 7, be patient, therefore, unto the coming of the Lord. And I thought, there's a beauty in that as well. There's a beauty in learning to find calm and peace in waiting on the Lord. And in, in, you know, in this case, speaking of, I think the second coming, but also I think waiting for the Lord to manifest his works within us too. I thought that was really beautiful because both are true. There's an interesting tension between both of these principles of actively doing while at the same time recognizing that all that we do is waiting on the Lord and His plan and His, um, that His ways are higher than ours. He can see where this is going and we wait on Him because we know that He can see and we trust what He can see. But one of the things that I like by the point you just brought up is that we are waiting in patience, we are trusting in the Lord, but connecting it to this ending And the concept of the book of James, James is talking to a group of people that are um, searching for and sifting through differing interpretations of what it means to be Christian. And I think he's given us this outline so that we can apply it to our own lives. But what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to try to live like Christ, but it also means being part of the body of Christ. And so we've talked about these concepts in the context of also not judging and knowing how to grow closer to each other. A lot of the things we've talked about today talk about turning towards each other instead of um, looking at our differences. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe you're spending time. Maybe it's a a pride in a a spiritual gift. Maybe Maybe you just sin differently than I do. And maybe we, um, th- th- well, there's diverse ways we can sin. So, I mean, maybe it's judge- maybe it's coveting people's spiritual gifts. Maybe it's coveting people's money. Who knows? But either way, we can turn away from each other and t- instead of towards each other. But if we're, that's the difference between the plan of salvation as an individual and the plan of salvation as the body of Christ. That as we turn towards each other, we can lift each other up. That when we patiently are waiting for the Lord, we can be his servants in, in strengthening each other. And that we one of the ways we can do that is, is ask in faith with prayer. Because at the end he says, and, and some of this is talking about 
anointing and such, but people in general, as they confess to each other and, and pray for one another, we can support one another. And, and in verse 16, and verse 16 and is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. So it says, a, a prayer of faith in 15 will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him. And then in verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Using our speech to bless other people is the definition of true ministering, too. And I, and I do think about, I really do just want to state the young woman's um, theme again, where it says, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I strive to become like him. I seek and act upon personal revelation and minister to others in his holy name. If we can follow what James has, has told us in this book, um, the difference I'm feeling is that he's actually giving us a religion as opposed to an access to, to God through indivi- our individual mm. journey, that this is what true lo- religion looks like. No judgment, loving everybody, serving those that are in need, listening, loving, repenting, and working, and being willing to lift each other up and point out that we're all children of God and that we can get back to God together. Like this beautiful friend you were talking about, if we I was, could live more I like I was just going to say, much like this friend... If as a body of Christ, that is how we are responding to one another, that is something that you yearn to be a part of. You would look forward to that connection again and again. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about the book of James. Thank you, Laurel.